Welcome to 12 Scholars, a brand new podcast dedicated to personal development. In this first series, we meet 12 inspiring people, all with a bias for being proactive. To learn more about personal development and how you can take your performance to the next level, visit our website and click the button to subscribe. Today, we welcome Gary Lovett to 12 Scholars. Gary is Chief Executive of Social Sense and a serial entrepreneur. So it's really just looking at the ingredients that make up that decision and and changing them around. We all experience nudges in our lives. Every single day we're being nudged in a particular direction. So for us it's about making the invisible more visible. We need a bit of that, don't we? Let's face it, we're 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 in really interesting times. Gary has a passion for social change. He has worked with the NHS, the police, and schools up and down the country to help people make better decisions. And through the subtle art of digital persuasion, has improved lives and reduced pressure on our social services. So in today's show, we sit down with Gary to discuss being proactive and how we all have the freedom to choose. So welcome, Gary, to 12 Scholars. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really good. Yeah, it's uh, pouring down typical Manchester day, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I thought I'd kick off and kind of you know, throw one at you. What would be one of your best decisions you've ever made and why? Oh, that's a big one to begin with. Um, I think going into self-employment, I think growing up, um, we, we go through school and college um, prepared to go and, and, and get a job and work for somebody else. And um, I, I, I thought at an early age, uh, it was always in me to try and book that trend and, uh, and, and do it myself. Um, so I set my first business up at 2022 um, after university and I've never looked back since. So I think um, for me, the best decision was to be brave enough to, to go into to self-employment and running my own business. And what lessons have you learned from that self, self-employment journey? Oh, lots. Um, I think the first thing is you can't do it all on your own. You might think you can in the early days, especially when you're young and headstrong, uh, but but you do need help and, and you need to surround yourself with people who have been there and done it. Um, know your strengths um, and do them well, uh, but also recognize your weaknesses and, and the things you need to improve. Uh, so I think it takes a little, a little bit of maturity to realize that, but over the years I've gradually um, started to, to work and, and listen more um, with others who have been there and done it. What would you say is one of the worst decisions you've perhaps made over your career? Probably trying to diversify too quickly, um, especially in a recession. Uh, well, we, we had a, in 2008, 2009, we, we, we hit some troubled times, didn't we, as, a, as an economy. At that point, we were, we were flying, we were doing really well. Um, but I think in one year, I opened up three businesses um, uh, on top of the business I was already running, which was a huge mistake. And so my, my lesson from that is to really do one or two things well and stay focused on making a difference on the things that you, you do really, really well. That's only in hindsight that you'd consider it to be a, a poor decision. I think so. I, I think so. I think if you are going to diversify, I think you need to do it from a position of strength and uh, not to try and chase after something that is, is, is not working. You always need a core for your own sanity and your own income, uh, you know, every, every, every week, every, every month, um, especially now I've got a family. Uh, it's, you have to have that stability and then build from there rather than the other way around. Today, you're known for being a specialist in helping people and helping organizations change attitudes and changing behaviors. 
So perhaps we could talk a little bit about how do we all make decisions and what are some of those influencing factors? Well, my background is marketing. So I've always been fascinated with um, why people buy certain products, what makes people tick. And I think there are two things, really. One is the, the environment around us and the messages that, that bombard us every day. A lot of these things, we, they don't even enter our conscious thought, but we see hundreds and thousands of messages coming into us that will have some influence on, on the choices that we make. And I think the second thing is, is our own brain and, and how we're feeling at that particular time. I've been on a journey from um, working in a commercial world where we're encouraging people to buy certain products to actually looking at how we can use similar techniques to help young people in particular make more informed and potentially healthier choices. And how are you applying that to society and people today? Okay, so society and in particular young people face a lot of pressures, whether it's social media, uh, lots of new emerging behaviours such as online gambling. And a lot of it is about um, trying to provide the options in a different way uh, so that young people can make a more informed choice. So just to give you an example, we talk a lot about the default option. So at the moment in certain gangs and cultures, unfortunately, the default option is, is to carry a knife and to, to get into crime. When you present it as a whole, um, it's actually a very small minority of people. Um, so for us, it's about making the invisible more visible, making sure that um, these young people can see that there are other options available to them, that there are positive career pathways, that we can make the positive role models more visible versus those who are um, leading these drugs gangs or these, these criminal activities. It is marketing because we're just presenting the choices in a very different way so that young people can understand that there is another alternative. And how would you present those choices? So you, you talked about making the invisible visible. How would you do that? Yeah, so the most important thing is to make sure that that message comes from them. So the first thing that we do is we get a real baseline of what's really happening and not just the actual behavior, but we look at the, the perceptions and the attitudes that, that go into those behaviors. And we, we, at that point, we identify some of the misperceptions that might be causing pressures to conform with those behaviors. We work with the young people and communities to unpick some of those uh, misperceptions and actually get them to own and drive that positive message forward. And the power of what we do really comes from working with those communities and empowering them to lead that change. And can you give us an example of one of those misperceptions? Yeah. Um, so some of our early work included smoking and alcohol and, and non-smoking, for example. One of the misperceptions is that a lot of people do smoke, um, especially because when you're outside of school, that's the visible part. You see everybody crowded around smoking. It's the first impression. But actually, it's around 92% of young people, 14 years old, actually don't smoke. And that number of non-smokers is getting higher and higher every year. Yet when we asked them, they thought it was about one in two. So there's a real disparity between what's really happening and what young people perceive to be happening. And it's about pushing forward that positive message to say that actually most people choose not to do this rather than telling them to do it or not to do it. It's just giving them that information. And you mentioned about uh, social media and social pressures. Mm -hmm. And would you say that social media is a, um, a good for society or a bad influence? I think both. I think um, in, in some ways it has connected people. Um, it's made activities more visible for young people. So if you think back in 20 years ago, a lot of the things that were happening in and around us were advertised on in libraries and council walls and things like that. And maybe young people just didn't see those opportunities. So I, I think in some ways it's helped to make some of the real world activities more visible and it has connected people. But I think on the negative side, whilst young people may be having more friendships and uh, the meaningfulness of those relationships and the depth of them, uh, unfortunately, seems to be much less. Um, so you are in a situation as well where 
young people are in that constant, constant comparison trap of thinking that everybody else is leading the best life, um, a better life than them. And uh, that can create a lot of anxiety and pressure, which um, we've seen over the, over the last few years. I know previously when we spoke, you've talked about social norms and social norm theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps you could describe to our listeners and to our readers uh, what we actually mean by social norms and perhaps give us some examples there. So social norms refers to what is the default option in our lives. So if we get in the car, um, thankfully now, the default option would be to put on a seatbelt. Um, for um, women who are pregnant, the default option, thankfully now, is to not smoke the cigarettes. But over time, these behaviours change and they, different things come in and out. Now, what we look to do is, is to look at what makes up that decision, where are those pressures coming from. So social norms is very much about identifying what's real, what's really happening, and tackling some of the misperceptions that might exist behind that decision. So if you take knife crime, for example, there's a lot of discussion in the media about this being an epidemic. Um, young people themselves are now starting to think that if they're not carrying a knife, then they're going to be in the minority and, and they're going to feel unsafe. And, and that's the best way to do it. But when we look at the data, it's less than 5% of people have ever, ever carried a weapon onto the streets. Even though the social norm is that people aren't carrying weapons, the media and others are, um, are making the negative more visible. So what we're trying to do is balance that and show young people that the norm is actually the, the, the more positive behaviour. So we touched on data there. How would you say the data has changed perhaps over the years? Yeah, we've noticed a couple of really, really important trends, actually. Um, so probably 10 years ago, a lot of the behaviours that young people were making were were forced by uh, peer pressure and the need to fit into a particular group or society. We've seen that changing over the over the last particularly five or 10 years in that a lot of um, risk behaviours are driven now by the anxieties and stresses of, of, of young people themselves, wherever that's coming from. When we faced with all these challenges then, What's the sort of skills or tools that um, we can use ourselves to help us make better choices? Okay, so the first thing that we look at, more than the behaviour itself, is how can we make individuals more resilient? And resilience comes from a number of different things. Resilience, defined as the ability to bounce back from adversity. And for us, there's a few things that go into that. Um, the first thing is the people that surround you. You know, who is Team Rob? Okay. Um, the second thing is... What coping mechanisms do you have when, you know, when you are feeling stressed out? What are the things that you can do to take a step back and be at ease with yourself? It was that need and that desire to, uh, to focus more on, on resilience that led us down the mindfulness routes and helping young people to, to become more present and not dwell on the past or worry too much about the future. So very much when you're in the room, you know, be in the room. Absolutely, because a lot of the anxieties that young people face um, are their, their minds getting running away with them, worrying about things that, that may or may never happen. Um, and actually, they rarely allow themselves a chance to switch off. You think back 20 years ago, Rob, when we would look out the window on a train and, and notice things because we didn't have our tablets and our, our phones to, to occupy us. And I think we need to return to that a little bit more and give ourselves permission to just switch off and, and be and just be. I noticed it this morning, uh, I caught the tram on the way into town and pretty much nine out of 10 people were there looking at the phones, you know, checking Instagram, apart from this one lady who was actually knitting on the tram. Fantastic. And she had the biggest smile on her face <laughs> of everyone. Brilliant.
we touched on mindfulness there. Mindfulness is very on vogue at the moment, and certainly in business circles, it's very uh, it's a hot topic. Mm-hmm. And how do people switch off? Perhaps could you give us some examples or how would you actually work with people, or in particular young people, on mindfulness programs? Yeah, so we've we've got a number of different uh, programs that we work with schools. And um, for us, it starts with uh, with teachers because um, I, I read a stat recently that one in two teachers is struggling uh, with their own mental health. So I, I think. We need to address that first and foremost and, and look at cultures that exist within schools uh, because that's where some of those pressures come from uh, with young people. So we in Kent, for example, we've been training up 1,300 uh, teachers uh, at, a, at awareness level, intensive level, and a trainer-trainer level in partnership with Breathworks, who are one of the leading mindfulness deliverers. And it's been a fantastic result because what we've been able to do is, is, is change their lives, but then give them the baton so that they can work with young people and introduce tools and techniques that they can use. So before you're working with the actual school children, you're working with the staff to make sure they're, they're fully on board with the actual programs. Yeah, that's right. It, mindfulness isn't something that you just teach somebody. It, it's a habit. It's something that people need to be doing day in, day out, um, from meditation to keeping a, a journal on, on the things that you're grateful for. There's lots of different elements to it. People think that it's just about the meditation. It's not. There's way more to it than that. So the first goal is to always get the teachers to really understand it first of all and and to start practicing it and once they've done that then they can then start to introduce that into the classroom and and that's the the legacy element of it you know we we want to make sure that those skills are in the settings not just being brought in from people like us so for any teachers listening to this podcast are there any practical tools they could be doing today to help them switch off or be more you know present in the classroom I think make sure you give yourself a moment uh, before the, the day. Uh, so we have a, a fantastic three-minute breathing space uh, that, that they could listen to and, and use, which would set them up uh, for a day. Uh, even starting meetings with um, a little meditation can help. Um, just brings everybody in the room, gets everybody relaxed. Um, in terms of activities to do with the young people, uh, we see schools doing the daily mile now. You could do that in a mindful way. We've seen schools do kindness weeks where there's a big board and people make pledges of things that they, they're going to do to be kinder to themselves and each other. So there's lots of lots of activities that fit really, really nicely with the curriculum. And um, for us, it's about doing that in a way that doesn't add pressure, but actually reduces pressure and, and, and makes the workplace a, a calmer, happier environment. Sometimes when people are wanting to make better decisions, they're actually stuck in a bit of a rut and can't get out or you can't see the wood for the trees. How would we work with those people to help them see the light as it were? Well, I suppose it's like physical exercise, isn't it? It's small steps. So um, on the first day, you, you might do a, a one kilometer run and then you might build it up from there. You may, you may make some small tweaks to your diet. Mental health should be viewed in exactly the same way. Mental health and physical health should be viewed together as, as one. So what we would always say is just pick a couple of small things to, to begin with, um, make some goals and try and stick to them, make a plan and um, and get good people around you because um, I think when you try and do anything on your own, it's very, very difficult. But if there's a group of you all working together towards one objective, then all of a sudden it becomes easier. We mentioned that right at the very top about um, some of the lessons you've learned over the years is make sure you surround yourself with, with people because you can't do it all by yourself. 
Absolutely right. And and that's why when we go into schools, we, we try to get the whole senior leadership team on board so that they, they understand the evidence behind it, first of all, that this is something that works. It's not just a fad. And actually that, that there is a commitment in, in making sure that um, habits are changed, that the culture changes, that um, people notice the environment more, um, the good and the bad. Um, so, yeah, it's about that whole teamwork. And that's the only way to get sustainability on something like this. We mentioned mindfulness there. Uh, what else would go into the behavioural change programme? Okay, so there's a whole number of different determinants around social behaviour. Um, mindfulness is a really powerful tool because it actually gets young people off autopilot and into the conscious decision-making mode. Um, so if you take something like knife crime, for example, our belief is that if young people are thinking rationally, thinking more in the present moment, then they're less likely to be acting on emotion and therefore not carrying the weapon or not putting themselves in those situations where they could be at risk. So mindfulness can play a big part there. Um, in terms of the wider environment and the marketing, it's really about presenting choices in a very different way um, so that the default option becomes the more positive, the safer, healthier option. So you mentioned about your conscious and unconscious there. So in many ways, you're almost trying to reprogram the people to actually how do they make decisions? I think it's about giving them the power to make a more informed choice. So I think we all at different points in our life will be on autopilot. And actually, it's good to be on autopilot sometimes. If you had a, an eight-hour journey in the car, you don't want to be in the present moment for those eight hours. You want to just be on autopilot, relaxed, let your instincts take you wherever you want to go. Now, unfortunately, there are times where we don't want to be on autopilot because we can sleepwalk ourselves into situations where we may later regret. So I think it's about having a strategy for when people are in that mode, which is very much about nudging and, and changing the choice architecture differently. But actually, what we really want to do is get young people off autopilot into the present moment so that they can make a, a more healthy and informed choice. And what do you mean by kind of nudging them along the way? We all experience nudges in our lives. Every single day, we're being nudged in particular directions. So if you go to a canteen, for example, and there's healthy and unhealthy food, the chances are you'll take whatever the food is that's in front of you first. So one nudge potentially would be that you would put the healthy food at the front and you would put all the desserts, the chips and everything at the back. We're not saying to people, don't eat that stuff. What we're saying is, here's a different way of presenting the choice. You can have the healthy food because it's right there in front of you. And that's the thing that we see. And and that's risk-taking behavior in a nutshell. It's about presenting the choice in a different way, whether that's taking the branding off cigarette packets to making it less sexy, to promoting the fact that most people aren't undertaking those behaviors or taking, taking part in those behaviors. So it's really just looking at the ingredients that make up that decision and, and changing them around. So when it comes to making better choices using behavioural change programmes, one of the things we look for is about sustainability and how scalable those are. In, in your eyes, how would you go about making a, a sustainable change programme? So we have a four-part model. The first part is about uh, the human side. So that is the direct delivery that, um, that people experience, whether that's from a mindfulness teacher or a peer-to-peer programme. And we think that's the best place to start because um, just like a physical activity programme, you do need that motivation from somebody else usually to kick off. And um, the second part is culture. Uh, you can make these changes to individuals, but you need to affect the environment around them. And that's why policy is so important in terms of what the government's doing. The culture, um, whether it's our wider environment or within the workplace, needs to be addressed if we're going to succeed in the long term. The third element is digital. 
I think, especially for young people, um, they rely on on being able to do things on their phones. And actually, when we think about meditations and, and, and whatnot, they don't really want to be doing that at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. They want to be um, reflecting at 9 o'clock at night or over the weekend. So we've got a number of digital platforms where young people can sort of embed and, and continue their practice um, on, on those platforms. So our Mindful Me app is one of those. And then the fourth thing is is measurement. And, and the measurement for us, we talk about measuring with intent. It's not just about understanding what's going on. It's understanding where the marginal gains can be achieved and just continuing to improve those programs. So if you imagine those four things as a continual circle, then uh, those are the, the four elements that we see driving uh, sustainability. You spent a lot of time now working with young people. What sort of lessons have you learned along the way? I think the first thing is they are incredible and um, they're so talented, more socially aware than we ever were, uh, probably because the amount of information that's, that's out there and incredibly talented. And, and for us, um, we've, we want to give them the power to, to, to drive forward this change and, and, and they're doing it. Um, we're just, we just see ourselves as facilitators of that process uh, and supporting them. We need to give them more credit. We need to let them shine more um, rather than knock them down at the first opportunity. And the conversation needs to change. The media needs to focus more on, on the positives that, that young people are showing us. Only 8% of media stories relating to young people are actually positive. That needs to change uh, because there's some fantastic young people out there doing great, great work and great things for society as well. I don't think that's just young people. You, you pick up any copy of a newspaper and it's, it's always bad news. You know, that's the first thing, you know, that, that's almost sells copies. Absolutely. I mean, you see, um, the first thing is, is about who's offending or um, this crime has been committed. What about the thousands of volunteering hours that our communities give? People who are doing stuff day in, day out, giving up their weekends without pay. Why aren't we talking about that more? So, so that's what we're keen to do is, is to change that conversation. Very much so. Um, so very much kind of focusing on the positive news, focusing on the kind of social, you know, challenging those social norms. Absolutely right. Yeah. I, I think we talked about making the invisible visible uh, because I think if we do that, then that that positivity feeds um, other people. And and we need a bit of that, don't we? Let's face it. We're in, a, we're, in, we're in really interesting times. I think we need those good news stories to come through more, don't we? Yeah, I certainly feed off that and I'm sure you do as well, Rob. So some final questions for me, Gary. Yeah. Looking back now, what advice would you give your younger self? Be more humble. Accept that, um, that you don't know everything. And listen. Listen more, I think. And any advice on how do our listeners or readers become more proactive? Identify the things that motivate you and the things that you want to improve in, in your life and in business and create some themes. So rather than writing down a, a big list of tasks and just taking them off, look at the themes and the things that are important to you and that drive you and keep returning to them and thinking about how you can add different layers onto being the best you possibly can be in those, in those themes. If anyone wants to find out any more information about Social Sense, what should they do? How can they contact you? Yeah, so there's two parts to what we do. We've got our consultancy service, which is socialsense.co.uk. And some of the community programs I mentioned can be found at socialsensecic.co.uk. Well, Gary, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Rob. That was Gary Lovett. 
one of those people who's making a real impact up and down the country. In this episode, we learned more about being proactive and how we all have the freedom to choose. Gary's advice is to be aware of misperceptions, social norms and fake news. Avoid being on autopilot so you can make a more healthy and informed choice. Build resilience by making mindfulness a habit and do one or two things really well and focus on making a difference. To learn more about Gary and meet other inspiring people, visit our website at 12scholars.com. In other news, our first edition of the printed journal will be available soon. It's a stunning collection of insights and inspiration where we learn more about the guests we feature on this podcast. Head over to the website to order your copy. That was a 12 Scholars podcast. If you liked the episode, write us a review and be sure to tell one of your friends. My name is Bob and I look forward to joining you next time.